Hi friends, this is Dr. Michael Williams, and welcome back to another episode of the Diversifying Path podcast. This podcast explores how investing in diversity can lead to a higher return of investment in pathology and laboratory medicine by learning from the knowledge and experiences of diverse voices within our field. My next guest is Dr. Chinelo Onigenku. Dr. Onigenku is a graduate of medicine from the University of Lagos, Nigeria. She has served as a medical officer within the Nigerian Navy and a resident at the Lagos University Teaching Hospital, currently holding double board certification in chemical pathology from the National Postgraduate Medical College of Nigeria and the West African College of Physicians. Over 14 years, she has successfully built a career in laboratory medicine, quality management, clinical, and operational research. She has held academic and administrative roles in tertiary academic and health institutions in Nigeria and South Africa. She currently is a third-year pathology resident at the Medical College of Wisconsin, where she is actively involved in various research works. She is a clinical pathology enthusiast with interests in laboratory quality management and quality improvement. Outside of residency, she serves as a co-editor of the Medical College of Wisconsin Pathology Twitter page. She loves to travel, try out new recipes, and is actively involved in mentoring medical students and graduates applying for pathology residency. She is a future transfusion medicine fellow at the John Hopkins Hospital. Without further ado, here is Dr. Chinello on the Again, friends, this is uh, Dr. Michael Williams with another episode of the Diversifying Path podcast. I'm here with my next guest. Uh, can you tell us who you are, where are you from, and your pronouns? Hi, Michael. Hi, everyone. Thank you for having me. My name is Chinelo Onyeneku. I'm originally from Nigeria, where I was born and raised. I'm pronounced she, her, and hers. All right. And where are you currently at now for training? Oh, so um, I'm currently at the Medical College of Wisconsin in Milwaukee, and I'm a third year pathology resident in anatomic and clinical pathology. So let's explore more about you growing up. We had a discussion before the recording um, because you were actually... A practicing path- chemical pathologist That's correct. Um, before becoming a um, resident here. So can you tell us how you got into pathology and like your journey um, into, be- into becoming a chemical pathologist? Okay. It's a long and windy story, Michael. Are you sure you want to hear that? <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I'll start we with do. how I got into medicine uh, before pathology. So I come from a family background of six kids. I'm the second of these six kids, and my mom is a doctor. Back in Nigeria, as young as the age of five, um, I would usually come from elementary school. That's primary one. I think it's called grade one here. I'm not quite sure. 
after school to sit at the outpatient department to wait for my mom to <laughs> finish her work before we go home. And I did this with my siblings. And as at that age, we already knew we weren't supposed to touch doorknobs, we weren't supposed to touch rails and all of that. So I was exposed to medicine. I could see the patients coming in on some days in pains, sick with malaria, fever and all of that. And then a few days later, when we are still waiting to go home after school, we'll see the similar patients come back for follow-up, feeling much better, happy, and all of that. And for me, I think that what fascinated me was the change in their stage from being in pains and not being able to talk and being grumpy to being very happy and thankful and all of that. And I wanted to be able to do whatever it was that my mom was doing to them to help them reach that state. So I got that interest in medicine. And then I fast forward several years later, medical school had come in. I, I love kids. I already felt I wanted to be a pediatrician. You know, I come into medicine. And then in my third year, that's when we do pathology and pharmacology in Nigeria. And I was just struck by suddenly being exposed to the reasons why those several diseases I had always known. For instance, I knew impetigo. As far as seven years old, I knew I could get that from an organism called Staphylococcus. But now I could see why and how it happens. How do the rashes and the blisters come up and all of that. You know, all of a sudden I'm exposed to a source where the several questions and the wonderings that I had over the years were available. So that was my first interest in pathology. And then I have forensic pathology lectures. I'm fascinated by the stories from my lecturer about how, you know, they solve, piece together puzzles and solve crimes and all of that by you know, saying, finding the cause of death and all of that. So, but then that wasn't strong enough to, you know, push me away from my pediatric rotation, uh, interest. So I get into clinical clerkship. Mm -hmm. I have my first uh, rotation, my senior clerkship. I have pediatrics. I already have a mentor that I saw. I loved her style, her approach to practice, the way she saw patients. But I just realized I didn't mm -hmm. like seeing children sick. I love children, but I can't stand mm -hmm. seeing them in pain and all. But that still right. wasn't enough to deter me. That was just raising doubts. Well, um, an unfortunate incident, in quotes, as some people saw it back then, an incident in my pediatric clerkship. And this was during my rotation to an outside hospital, I unfortunately had a needle stick injury and the patient from whose uh, specimen I had that um, needle stick injury was in the window period of HIV based on the test results that were done subsequently. And suddenly I was requested and required to take a post-exposure prophylaxis and being a medical student my 
institution decided to give me the best of care. They treated me specially, I would say, because, you know, I was involved. My counseling sessions required the pathologists. Then hematology was in charge of HIV testing. So hematology and blood transfusion, which is the way that subspecialty of pathology is called. So the department head was the one who counseled me before the testing, talked to me about mm -hmm. what the test results would be and subsequent testing intervals after the post-exposure post prophylaxis. Then I also had to deal with the clean air chemical pathologist who was in charge of the session on liver function and renal functions and they also talked to me. And then I realized, oh, these are doctors, these are medical doctors in this field and they are interpreting this test. Mm -hmm. And my pediatrician mentor who was worried about the outcome of my needle stick injury was always like, yeah. what did the pathologist say? What have they said? Each time I go back for testing, because I had to be tested at one month after the prophylaxis and at three months, what did they say? What are your tests looking like? Oh, what did the chemical pathologist say? There was so much anxiety on her own end and so much relief when I tell her, oh, they said it's okay. Then I go on with my yeah. clinical clerkship. Of course, thankfully, I was negative. I had no, no side effects on my organs. Clinical clerkship, mm -hmm. I get more exposed to clinical pathology conferences. And then I see cases we see in the ward rounds and clinics being discussed, yeah. especially cases where our clinicians were worried or at a loss of what's going on. At those conferences, I see some specialists that I haven't really seen visually before, you know. They don't talk mm -hmm. most of the time, and then usually at the end of the conference, they give the final diagnosis. I'm like, that's the pathologist. Like, everybody's waiting to see right. what they're going to say about this. So it was like, oh, these people again, they are the final say. They are like the consultants of my consultants, you know, so they consult. So yeah. that fascinated me and that drew me back again to my fascination about, you know, the explanations of how and why disease occurs. And so I decided to take an elective in forensic pathology, which was my area of first interest. But yeah. going backwards, I'll say that I've always loved chemistry from high school. So I still enjoyed chemical pathology oh. aspect of pathology. I had a question to like talk about your experiences like with uh, pathologists part being part of the rounds compared to like I guess you know most institutions here in the U.S. where it's mostly the clinical team, one clinical team like in this specialty that goes around. It's it's interesting because maybe there are some institutions in the U.S. that doesn't. I'm not pretty pretty sure. But to have, like, the pathologist who's there, like, during the rounds to kind of discuss this is what we're seeing or this is what we're actually, this is what we're going to diagnose it as. People there to help with the patient, I thought that was pretty, like, interesting. 
to hear about that. And I'm so sorry about the the needle stick, and I'm you know I'm glad that you're doing okay as well. Well, you, you know, say- it's interesting because that was also what yeah. you said about pathologies being present during the grand round. So that's not necessarily at the bedside of the patients. That's like a conference, you know. Okay. Later okay. on, but we did have rotations as residents where we participated in rotations through renal and endocrinology mm-hmm. because our our style of training was slightly different than what we have here in the U.S. Like you said, I think there was more clinical inputs on the pathology aspects. Anyway, okay, <laughs> yeah. Gotcha. So um, going back to that, so I had my forensic pathology experience, which I think was awesome. Mm-hmm. I had that in my penultimate year, and I had that in Scotland, Aberdeen, actually, in Scotland. And I experienced all aspects of the forensic autopsy. I experienced crime scene investigation. I experienced, you know. Um, taking court witnesses and all of that and answering questions in court. But, you know, on the last day or the day before the last day of my rotation, I had this autopsy that was for a baby that was battered by the par- one of the parents. And that kind of completely unsettled me. And <laughs> the unsettling I got was so unexpected and I started questioning is this really what I want to do? I don't think so because I had thought that I had seen something I really loved coupled to the fact that it wasn't an right. area of pathology that was as robust as others in Nigeria so I decided to go back to my first love which is chemistry and that's how I ended up doing a chemical pathology residency can can you explain? I think you kind of talked about it a bit um, how the residency um, differs from like the residency here in, in the states. Sure. Because uh, we do combine like APCP, but you said chemical pathology for residency. Can you explain the difference? Yeah. So it's a combined residency and fellowship. It's usually four and a half to five years, and it's sort of based on the UK style, the British style of. Uh, postgraduate medical training in that from the onset uh, prior to starting your residency you already are determined as to what specialty in pathology I'll say what subspecialty in pathology that you would like to choose so the back home pathology is divided broadly into four aspects and the, one of the major mm-hmm. aspects is what we call anatomic pathology here. And then the other three aspects yeah. we have, we have uh, medical microbiology and immunology, and then we have hematology and blood transfusion. So this kind of covers what we call hematopathology here and transfusion medicine and blood banking. And then we have the last mm-hmm. aspect, which is um, chemical pathology and metabolic medicine and here it's basically largely what we call clinical chemistry but I feel like what we did back mm-hmm. back home was actually more much more extensive and far-reaching than what is obtainable here because as a chemical pathologist back home our practice in, and training involved um, 
managing patients with obesity and metabolic syndrome. So we also had obesity and metabolic mm -hmm. clinics, and we had lipidology clinics as well. Uh, we worked together with endocrinologists in managing these patients. And sometimes we get referrals okay. for patients going for surgery who are morbidly obese that require, you know, to lose weight and all of that. And then for clinical calls, we could get called to the emergency room or to the ICU for some intractable electrolytes imbalance, you know, for patients who have oh, wow. been having this electrolyte imbalance and the clinicians are trying to manage and they just can't seem to then mm -hmm. we come in, we look at their medications, we look at their IV fluids, we look at their organ functions and tie all these together just to be sure that they're not having any side effects or they're not getting the wrong thing and, yeah. and so we try to give them the right regimen for the patient and the way right way to correct those and all of that so it was different mm -hmm. so by the time you come in you have the first two years what we call the junior residency and during that period mm -hmm. you have 15 months in your own area of specialization so for instance i did chemical pathology first uh, 15 months within the first two years I spent within clinical chemistry and the rest of the nine months distributed three months each in the other subspecialties so but because you already okay. have a planned subspecialty your exposure to those other subspecialties are only targeted because they know that you need certain basic knowledge to for your practice as a chemical pathologist but then they're equipping you okay with the basic knowledge just in case you work in a situation or a lab where you are required to right. you know see specimens and review specimens from those other subspecialties and then the rest of the two okay. and a half years you still spend in your own area with a research work that will be in that. And then before you transition from to the senior residence, which is the second aspect, you have to write what we call a part one fellowship examination. And this covers the general pathology mm -hmm. and your own area of subspecialization. And then you have to pass that before you continue. Then at the end of the senior residence, you pass the fellowship examination and then you are certified. It's so, you know, interesting because like, I was I was sharing with you before the, the before we were recording uh, about taking the boards here the APCP boards and then it kind of staying for that and then like you know I guess like for you you're just like you you had to go through these steps before finishing and mm -hmm. being certified to be independently practice right. um, at least and I was gonna say that like you you got through it you know I'm sure you were like. During that time, you're like, oh my God, I just want to be done. Right. I'm sorry, like, you're like, right. Man, I just want to be done with right. these and all right. that. But, right. like, here we go. <laughs> and and throughout, like, to see the exposure. Because I, is a, for me, it's interesting to hear about, like, the differences in training. But where we eventually, we eventually end up, like, how different the training may be or the aspect of the training and stuff. And it seems like, for sure, you got a lot more of the, the, the combination of the clinical and pathology aspect of it. Mm -hmm. 
um, during your time when you were you know going through that. So I thought that was pretty awesome, just like seeing it, seeing like clinic patients and all that. Um, so yeah, I thought that was all cool. Uh, well, thank you. <laughs> but I think, and you. <laughs> well, I I wanted to like because to talk about. Um, you know, you, you are, you pass your exams, um, and you are a certified chemical pathologist. And I wanted to talk about, um, and have you discuss, because you, you actually practice before coming here to the U.S. to do another residency. Can you tell us how long you practice for and, like, what your practice consisted of? Sure, I can. So... I practiced, I finished my residency, uh, wrote the first fellowship exams. So back home, you can get certified by the National Postgraduate Medical College of Nigeria, which is the national body. And then you also have an option of getting certified by the West African College of Physicians, which requires another research work and almost the same curriculum, just like differences and then a different board exams. So, but I did my first, I, I was supposed to do these two board certifications and examinations in 2014, but that was the year Ebola came. So I couldn't do the West African one. Mm. So I had my first one, which was the national certification immediately after completing my residency. So I did that in 2014. And then I took an extended period of six months to do a post fellowship position as a resident doctor, sort of almost like an attending, but, you know, not really assigned that hospital role, overseeing other residents mm -hmm. while I was waiting for the Ebola period to wane away so that the exams will be taken. So I took that second one in 2015. And right after that, in May, I started practicing. I was, I got a position as a pathologist um, overseeing a laboratory in at Babcock University Teaching Hospital is a tertiary private institution in Nigeria. And then I was mm -hmm. also uh, uh, serving the role of the U.S. equivalent of an assistant professor in the medical school. And at the same time, also training pathology residents within that teaching hospital. So that was the role. Mm -hmm. It was an all-encompassive role. So it was more like a dual role, a hospital consultant and a university yeah. uh, lecturer, academic position. And I did that for three years before I started interviewing here. So but while I was doing that, I would uh, say, how did I get here? While I was doing residency, because yeah. <laughs> I know that's your next question. From, uh, I'm gonna. You're almost <laughs> like you're reading my mind. <laughs> yeah, because I feel like it's it's an unanswered question. So I did that for three years. Then what? Yeah. I suddenly appeared in the U.S. So before, while I was doing, like, I, <laughs> while I was doing my residency I in Michael, I yeah. had like I told you, I've always been inquisitive trying to know what's going on, why is it happening this way. So I was mm -hmm. quite interested in research. Right. Research wasn't mandatory, but I did quite a few research works. And 
I got interested in laboratory management and quality improvement. I had to go to South Africa mm-hmm. on some six months sort of extensive where I served as a visiting senior resident in a hospital and a university that was you know, accredited in Africa for laboratory management by the International Federation of Clinical Chemistry. So I was there and exposed, and that exposure sort of, that was my first major um, exposure as a postgraduate medical doctor to mentoring, like formal mentoring, even though um, it wasn't termed that, but immediately I encountered some of the supervisors there, I just knew that I want to be like this. I want to be a pathologist like this. I want to be able to do this, what they're doing, the way they're doing this. I want to be able to have this kind of relationship with my residents and all of that. So um, they were the Mm -hmm. ones that pushed me towards attending international conferences. And from attending conferences in South Africa, I got into the U.S. I started attending the American Association for Clinical Chemistry annual conferences based on research I had done Mm -hmm. in Nigeria and South Africa. So I did this as a resident. And every year I would come to the U.S. because one of my abstracts would be (laughs) accepted for presentation. And Mm -hmm. I like traveling. That's what I do on the side. Thanks to COVID. It hasn't been very <laughs> so I know. I'm so yeah, I know. <laughs> it will get there. We'll get there. We'll get back there. Hopefully. <laughs> anyway, so Yeah. Michael, so I came to the US quite a few times and it was an amazing experience the first time, of course. Totally out of Nigeria, out of Africa. I had been to UK in my medical school, but it was my first time in the US. And right came to this very mm-hmm. big conference. The American AACC conference is a very huge conference. And I was fascinated by the kind of research presentations. For the first time, I saw a huge oh. gap between what I was able to do and what was possible for me to do. Right. And also that sort of, you know, kept stimulating me unconsciously because that was my residency years. And by the time I started practicing as a pathologist, after the first year, the second year of practice, I suddenly started feeling like, oh, I seem to have reached my peak here. So by the time I was in my second year of post-training practice, and I had come to the U.S. quite a few times, and I was beginning to feel like I had reached the peak of my career, I began to think of what else to stimulate me, what else I felt. So this exposure in the U.S. showed me that I could expand my career beyond what I had attained, Mm -hmm. especially in my research aspect and all of that. And so... That's how okay. the thought to relocate to North America <laughs> started. And, yeah. I actually had a question um, to transition. Um, so for, let's say that for people who are listening currently who are international medical graduates in different countries wanting to 
or thinking about transitioning to another country, let's like, for example, in your case, the U.S., um, and possibly change their careers or continue on to grow their own career, what's advice you can give them, things that they should be aware of um, before making that leap? Well, um, it's quite broad, but for me, I would say be ready, especially if you've attained my own level of expertise before moving. Uh, be ready to be trainable, so to say. Be ready to get back to mm -hmm. that resident in training status. Um, be open to learning. Mm -hmm. Find it an exciting process. And remember that you're moving to a new system. There will definitely be changes and differences from where you're coming from. You know, and being able to expect that there'll be differences helps you get prepared for them. And I think that networking too, mm -hmm. you know, speaking to, trying to look for similar people that have made the kind of move that you're looking for would be very, right. very yeah. important. But while doing that, I don't think mm -hmm. that you should be limited by not seeing such people. It might just be that you weren't right. able to get to them or your connections weren't <laughs> wide enough, but if it's dreamable, it's achievable. <laughs> I love that. I was like, whoa. Ooh. <laughs> I, and I think you, you brought it up too. Um, and for those listening, the way Chanel and I met, she actually interviewed in my residency and we talked and we, we kept in contact at least through social media, through LinkedIn for the most part. Right. Um, and she interviewed with us and then eventually she's at Medical College of Wisconsin um, for her residency. And I say that because you brought up about the differences in um, the training or like, I guess, the difficulties. Can you tell us or feel comfortable sharing with us like difficulties that you, um, I guess, encountered being to that going back into that resident mindset? Well, um, for, sta for starters, I'll still like to rephrase them as differences. Not necessarily... Differences, yeah, I'm so sorry. Not necessarily. Some of them posed difficulties, right? Because then they cost some bumps. Mm. Because, I mean, when you're not used to something, you will have to like change your style or your approach to things to adapt to it. I think that one major difference for me uh, which I feel like anybody coming from my country would or should be prepared for is the use of laboratory information software and the extensive use of electronic mm -hmm. medical records so um, there was such a huge gap because back home everything is on paper you know, we hand write. Mm -hmm. And while this may limit um, your knowledge of the patient and your access to information on the patient, what it did for us was that it sort of developed our clinical acumen as well and our clinical mm -hmm. knowledge because you would have to, like, imagine why am I seeing this kind of results? What are the possibilities that can present this kind of results? Because you don't have access to the patient's chart. So when you're reviewing the results and interpreting them, 
you are already trying to like provide the clinician with possibilities of what this picture that you're seeing is, and the several differentials could be due to this and due to that, and that also caused us to have a lot of communication with the clinicians back and forth to talk about patients. Right. Now, so that's helped me, my, the, my clinical acumen helped me back, back then. And it's also helping me here because, I mean, I've received feedback from my trainers from time to time. Oh, you seem to be, your clinical knowledge seems to be like very good and all of that. How is that so? Is there something different about the way you train in medical school? And I had to explain that I think it's unique to the setting and all of that. Now, going back to yeah. softwares, of course you have things like typing, you have to type. Imagine someone has been writing like all their lives, now typing. Uh -huh. So you have to increase your speed of typing because <laughs> everything is typewritten. Yeah. So you have to be fast, dictation. Yeah. I feel like even the softwares, the uh, voice transcription softwares that we use, even though you practice with them before for them to recognize your voice, I feel like on the long run, they don't do well with your accent, you know? Mm. And I don't know why that is so. Like Sometimes I'm like, why? That's not what I said, <laughs> you know? you know so <laughs> that was an initial yeah. challenge but it gets better and then another thing was i think this was a positive but coming from somewhere where it wasn't uh, what i was used to initially was almost looking inundating the, a lot of electronic mail communications yeah my first month here, right. like once my laptop was, my email inbox was beeping like every minute with emails. I was almost, you know, wondering what's going on, what's going on. But, you know, after the first right. week, second week, you will learn how to, you know, triage and know that, oh, this is just general communication. This is just this, this is this. These are the ones right. you should respond to. So those were some of the differences. And uh, what else can I say? I think that there's so much information and learning resources available here, not as much as mm -hmm. is back home. And I think here yeah. you are, you won't, you will never lack for, uh, resources for learning rather you if you, you might stand the chance of feeling like you don't even mm -hmm. know what to, which one to go with and all because there are so many of them so that's why I said it may not necessarily be difficulties it's just differences I, <laughs> I apologize for no, that no. I, I guess I, in my head I was no. like difficulty difference no. no. um, but yeah no, that, you know that is so interesting we grew up. Well, I grew up. Um, I'm a I'm a millennial for everybody to know. I know. And that's we fine. grew up like, <laughs> you know, we yeah, we are geriatric millennials. That's why I am. But we grew up with like you know with with aim like to to, to type. Mm -hmm. And so I learned. I mean, we had classes of like typing, but the way I really learned to like type things up was through uh, aim, instant messenger. Mm -hmm back in the day like in college and stuff where 
you know, the, your roommate, the person who was like, let's say next door, instead of like walking and going to their, their mm-hmm. room, you just like tip aiming and all that. And so that's that's where you have to, and then for you to like, all right, like it's a new environment and now you have to like learn how to like type and navigate through that stuff. Like, man, it is, yeah. it's, that is crazy, yeah. you know, like to, to, to go that. And then, but you, but you eventually got into it. I guess it was more of like you had to adapt in yes, order to like yes, just get, get that used one to challenge that. This down. Is what you so. need to do. Just do it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so to transition more, because you, you're doing residency and you are going to do transfusion medicine, which is congratulations. I'm Thank you. Thank before. you. Um, what, what led you, and it, you know, it, it sounds like from your experiences, it, it, this is probably where you're going, but, you know, transfusion medicine versus going for clinical chemistry, like what was mm-hmm. the deciding factor for you? For me, I think that, first of all, I came with an open mind and excitement at mm-hmm. what was available, you know, like I told you before, the opportunity to get exposed again to the anatomic aspects and the clinic and all the clinical aspects of pathology without any particular kind of bias from the onset so i came with that open mind that i've always loved chemistry and i will always love Mm -hmm. chemistry and i had attained certain expertise based on my previous training and experience but i was also willing to discover a new love so to say and i was curious to know what it would be and i think that transfusion medicine shared similarities with clinical chemistry that attracted me to chemistry in the first place and pathology as a whole in that while i loved patient interaction i didn't want to do this full time Mm -hmm. I still wanted some laboratory work and medicine related to laboratory work and I still wanted research. And when you look at the training and the practice in the US, I feel like while my clinical chemistry background in Nigeria afforded me all of this, um, I do not think that it may afford me all of that. I mean, it has some clinical aspects, but it wouldn't afford me the much that I wanted in my practice as a laboratory physician. So it's kind of limited in the area of the um, extent to which it covers as per metabolic medicine back home compared to here, which is part of the reason why there's a lot of clinical interface, you know, so there's more of laboratory technical aspects and laboratory management and, and analy- analytical chemistry here, which is fine. Mm-hmm. But transition medicine has all of what I want. You know, the antibody identification is enough to give me that mm-hmm. trying to figure out things. You know, um, cellular therapy, epheresis, red cell exchange is going to give me all of the opportunity for some patient interaction without full-time ownership of that patient. Research is Mm -hmm. abundant in its multifaceted nature, you know. So I think it had everything Mm -hmm. I wanted. And the fact that so far, even... I felt like 
not to say that there is no new thing to learn in chemistry, but I have achieved a certain degree of expertise and I have an opportunity to explore another area to achieve expertise in yeah. it. So why would I, you know, leave that opportunity and continue in what I've been doing all mm-hmm. this while? And it's not like, I feel like when I'm done training, there's probably going to be opportunities that may present themselves for me to use both aspects of mm-hmm. clinical pathology. And I'll be in a better position to do that if I did my transition medicine. So, yeah. Yes, honey, mama. Yes, mama. I love it. Uh, you, know, I, you know, I say that because, like, I think I'm going more the AP route. Mm-hmm. And I don't, and I try not to say it to say it as a division between pathology in general. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know we say APCP mm-hmm. and we all do our subspecialties. Mm-hmm. But for you to, like, have that experience, which is so, like, golden and valuable, like, in one specialty in pathology and then also doing something different, um, but still have, on the same, I guess, vein, have that same, mm-hmm. like, have a... Then it's connecting it. And, like, you're, you see, you're seeing, like, all of it. And then to be able to be like, all right, I have this experience. This is how I can contribute back to the field. And this is what I can do for myself career-wise and continue to grow and explore. It's like, mm-hmm. so it's, it's, you know, I think it's like the, it's, I guess, the sign of a lifelong learner. Like we're, right. we're all supposed to be. But right. like, especially going through and like having that experience, you know. So that is so awesome. Um, I did have two last questions for okay. you. Um, the, the first question is, you know, and I kind of said it before, but what are ways we can, I guess, I always say diversify in path. And for your instance, like for those who are um, international medical graduates who, like say for your, like for you, for example, choosing pathology, mm-hmm. what are ways or things you can um, advise for people to look into pathology, um, especially more on the international aspect? So... Um... Look at diversity, and I'm coming from the point of a person with of color, right, with black skin, and I'm coming mm-hmm. from the position of a black female in medicine, and I'm coming from mm-hmm. a person in a specialty in medicine that seems to have fewer people of my kind represented mm-hmm. there mm-hmm. Um, I think that first of all the question should be why are there fewer people of my kind in this aspect of medicine and before we look at ways to you know reduce or increase reduce this disparity and then increase the representation is that okay that I refrain it like this Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, okay. I would say first of all that pathology is peculiar. Now, taking medicine as a a broad specialty, we already know that people of my type are underrepresented. It's a well documented fact. However, looking at mm-hmm. pathology in particular, why are we not so much there? So, if you are going through medicine, pathology is a part of medicine. You don't, we don't expect that when there are already fewer people 
in medicine as a general uh, specialty, we can get more people of my color or my type in pathology. Now, what do we do and why is this so? These people have less access to healthcare. These people are underrepresented in healthcare. Why are they underrepresented? Because there's a dominant culture. How can we create a heterogeneous culture? We can do this by involving the dominant culture. And I know that this is slightly different than what you would expect, but I feel like already the few of us that are present in this specialty, on our own, we have taken it upon ourselves to try to bridge the gap that is already present, right? For instance, look at what you're doing with diversifying pathology. I feel like this is just an avenue and a platform for you to increase awareness because pathology as a specialty is hidden, is an unknown aspect of mm. medicine. I didn't know I was going to be a pathologist, but I knew I was going to be a medical doctor so at the age of five. I didn't even know there was anything called pathology. Before coming into mm -hmm. medicine, mm -hmm. I got exposed while I was a medical student. If you look around and talk to and interact with so many other pathologists, you'll probably find the same thing. And that's because we walk behind the scenes, so to say. And that was my attraction to pathology. I prefer to walk behind the scene to make a difference. Mm -hmm. So even though we're walking behind the scene, we need to at some point show ourselves because research has shown that if we are to increase this equity, we are talking about improve equity in healthcare for this population. It is important for us to involve them. You can't be what you cannot see. I'll use myself mm -hmm. as an example. Mm -hmm. When I started the process of trying to apply for residency in pathology in the US. What was the first thing I did? I started contacting my classmates that are in residency here to ask questions. But everybody was in internal medicine or pediatrics or family medicine. And all the feedback I got was that, oh, we don't know any person from Nigeria in pathology residency. Oh, it's difficult. We don't even know. Okay, can you link me up to someone you know who is a pathologist? Oh, we don't really interact with them. We've never seen them. We do this and we do that. We just see the results and all of that. Mm -hmm. And for me, that was a problem. Everybody was advising me to go into internal medicine. I'm sorry, that was horrifying to me because I couldn't see myself doing that. Mm -hmm. That wasn't something yeah. I wanted to do. So at the end of the day, I found one or two people and I spoke to them. And, you know, there were limitations that were profiled to me apart from the fact that it's doable. But I was told things like, we are more than 10 years post-graduation from medical school and all of that. So one thing I would know for sure is that you need to 
as a mentee, not listen to limitations imposed on you. Now, going back, I know I'm going round and round this topic, but going back to how we can bridge this gap, you and I, I'm already involved in mentoring Nigerian medical graduates all over the world who are trying to get into pathology residency because that was the first thing. After I matched, that was the first thing I said I'll do. And I'm doing this in collaboration with a Nigerian medical graduate group network called Kainji. Mm -hmm. I coordinate their pathology mentoring aspects and we prepare candidates, help them to uh, direct them according to what we think would help them boost their profile, you know, things like research, attending mm -hmm. conferences, doing observership, having publications, and all of that, help them in their personal statement. But remember, you and I are already part of this underrepresented, and we are having our mm -hmm. primary role as, for me, a resident and you a fellow. You have a primary duty in that aspect, which the dominant culture also has. But you get involved in several other things because for me, I feel like we try to help people of our kind to be in the same kind of position we are in. And we're also trying to build our career and to show that mm -hmm. we are fit for where we are fit for, to occupy the roles that we have been called or we are or that we find ourselves in we try to get validation as well from occupying several roles that are outside of our primary duty the dominant culture does not have this bias and what does that do that puts us much more at another disadvantage because some of these activities obviously are time consuming. We are already disadvantaged and we engage in these activities. But the reason why we want to make a culture heterogeneous is that we need to make the homogeneous culture aware that this culture needs to be heterogeneous. We can't do that just by changing policies. We need to get them involved. So that's why I say involve mm -hmm. the dominant culture. And institutions and societies can do this. I think ASCP is partnering with Society mm -hmm. of Black Pathologists to do something along this line. Mm -hmm. I think that they can go even further to go beyond recruiting from medical school into pathology residency to exposing and making pathology visual at the level of the high schools. You know, tell people mm -hmm. about pathology. There is an aspect of medicine that does this. This is, these people are existing. They are very key in the management of the diseases and in the testing. These are the things that they do. We can do this through avenues such as field trips to pathology laboratories or departments organized or requested mm -hmm. from high schools. This is the kind of things we do back home. Go to high schools and give talks 
you know, have presentations okay. and all of that. But in mm -hmm. this scenario, I would say while doing that involve the dominant culture. Mm -hmm. And if I see mm -hmm. that people that are not of my kind, in quote, are also there with them, I'm more likely to be accommodative of those people because I realize that they're comfortable in the environment of people like me. And in the long run, even though you may argue that in the short term that you may not achieve what you want, but in the long run, I think that the effects and the extents will be far-reaching. It will go beyond increasing mm -hmm. diversity in pathology to increasing the access that is lacking in healthcare seeking behaviors in this population to increasing the equity and even uh, representation in other aspects of medicine that may be lacking as well. So it will be far reaching, mm -hmm. you know, and then it will expose this dominant culture also to the culture that they are not used to. And it's for me to make for a more interesting and heterogeneous and you know, mm. conducive society at large. <laughs> yeah. Wow. I like it. I mean, and um, the last question I had was how can we, uh, what are ways listeners can follow you on social media to see how your career progresses? Okay. So, um, so I'm available on LinkedIn as Chinelo Nyeneku, and I could be reached there via messaging, and you can also see my profile there as well. On Twitter, I have a Twitter handle that is my, the first letter of my first name, underscore my last name, MD, so at C underscore Onyeneku MD. And I'm also available for contacts and any questions there. Thank you so much for joining us today for the podcast. Uh, love to hear your story. I'm so glad you uh, were able to share it with the audience. Uh, and thank you so much oh, again. Thank you, Michael, for having me. Thank you. <laughs> Hi again, friends. Well, this is it for today's episode. Thank you for taking the time out of your busy day to listen to the Versified Math Podcast. Hope you enjoyed the episode and then hope to see you soon. Bye.